On? Testing? There? All right, very good. <coughs> Thank you, Marvin, for reading that text. I realize it's long. It was long. When I went to print it out, it was like two full pages. But, man, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not apologizing for it because there's, there's value, there's power in just reading, reading Scripture. And I wonder, I wonder if you noticed, especially there in like chapter 17 and 18, um, if you actually, we, we skipped over chapter 16 to most of 15, but those are pretty dark, um, 17 and 18. But I, I wonder if you noticed in the middle of chapter 17, there was one bright spot in the middle of all the destruction that's happening. There was one bright spot. Um, look it up. It's in verse 14. It says, they will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That's the story of Revelation in a nutshell, is the Lamb will conquer. I remember back, one of the first ones, I think it was the one that Irvin preached, was he talked so much about the power of the Lamb. It's these, these themes begin to show up throughout Revelation over and over and over again. <clears throat> um, so that's just one. And, and I, I think those things begin to come out as we, as we read and we reread and reread. And some of it's really hard reading. Um, I think if, if you remember last, the last time I preached on the seven trumpets, I said that was the, there were two texts that I was hoping I wouldn't have to preach on, and I got both of them. This is the second of the two. Um, Marcus wasn't very sympathetic. He was just like, good. I was like, man, that doesn't help. But this one actually, I don't know. This, this was okay. It was, it's always good to dig into scriptures that are tough, that are hard for us maybe to understand or grasp, and just dig in and let God, God speak. So I just want to, we're going to just trying to take a step back of the whole thing because we've got a huge chunk, chapters 14 through 18, and just there's just a couple things that I want to point out to us today. Um, just let me, let me give you an overview of all, all these, these was it four, four chapters, five chapters, and then, then we'll come back and, and I just want to point out a few things. So we read part of chapter 14, and chapter 14 starts, um, well, we start at verse 6. There's three angels that come with a message, and they essentially lay out what's going to happen in fifth chapters 15, 16, 17, and on through that way. So if you saw, you listen to what the three angels said. The first one um, is, he says that the message of the eternal gospel is to be to proclaim to all who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. That's a theme. That's, that's something that I've noticed quite a few times throughout Revelation is every nation, tribe, language, people, language, all these different groups, and it always is centered around the gospel here, the message of the gospel for the whole world, or the people, referring to the people around the throne. It tells us how the gospel transcends through culture, time, place, whatever it may be. Um, and the second message was that the Babylon the Great has fallen. So when I'm referring, when, when it's referring to Babylon, um, there's a couple different, different ideas. I've heard speculation over and over trying to figure out which country today is Babylon and all that. We're not going to go there today. 
what, what I think um, John is referring to is, or very likely is referring even to the Roman Empire that's ruling in the culture and in the world that he's living in, the Roman Empire, but obviously he cannot name that um, because of the danger that that would bring. So, referring to that, but on a much larger scale, I think the Babylon that is being referred to is the kingdoms of this world across all time and place and how it spans <clears throat> into our world today. It's the kingdoms of the world and the values and the things that they live for and strive for and find their, um, their, uh, find their identity in. So when I'm referring to Babylon from here on out, that is what I'm referring to, the kingdoms of this world and the values that they um, hold. And the third message is about the wrath of God being poured out on those whose allegiance is to Satan. And you're, the seven bulls of wrath and the seven plagues are mentioned in chapters 15 and 16, which we're just going to skip over most of that. <clears throat> Chapter 17, we read about the great prostitute, also referring to Babylon. And the end of the chapter 17, we see her being destroyed. And in chapter 18, which I want us to, wanted us to be able to see, was Babylon, the things, the kingdoms of this world, and its values being destroyed. And it's not up there anymore, but the very last phrase I think that was up here was, in a moment, it was all gone. And I want you to remember that. In a moment, it was all gone, because the things of this world, the values of this world, in a moment, they're gone. So, three, three things that we're going to buzz through really quickly as we um, take an overview of these five chapters is, we're going to start in chapter 17 and 18, and I'm going to refer to it as what I call, I'm going to refer to it as the nature of evil. The kingdoms of this world, um, what I see, the nature of, the, of evil and its values and what it strives for. Yes, just, just that. So, three things that I see about the nature of the evil, and I, and I draw these, some of them loosely or just um, some of them more directly from chapter 17 and 18. But first of all, the nature of evil is that it seeks power, but evil seeks power through deception. Evil, doesn't, evil never seeks power through the truth because the truth brings freedom and it does not bring suppression. Evil seeks to gain power, and it does through, through deception so that it can gain control over what is, what is happening. Satan never comes up with anything original. We mentioned that before. Um, even with the mark of the beast and all that, it's all a copy of what something that God has done. And one of the ways that Satan use, uses to deceive people in verse 8 of chapter 17, it says that the, the dwellers of the earth are in awe. Whenever it says the people who dwell on this earth, it's referring to those whose allegiance is to Satan. So those people are in awe because he copies what Jesus did with his death and his resurrection. And he copies, tries to copy that, the one who was and is not, but now is again. Um, you see that referring to the beast. So it's through deception, trying to give a picture of great power um, by mimicking 
what God had done through the resurrection. Obviously, it's false. It's not a true resurrection or a real resurrection. But he gives that picture in order to deceive. It gives an illusion that it is in control. I think it was last week when we looked at chapters 12 and 13... Um, and I had noted this before, and I, I'd encourage you as you read through Revelation. And by the way, as we're going through this series, I'd encourage you to read not just the next text, what we're going through, but read through it over and over and over again, because you'll see these themes coming out. Themes coming out. Um, the one, and one of those things is that the evil that is unleashed on the earth is all, um, it's all evil that is permitted. So I, I read numerous times where what Satan was allowed to do, the evil that he was allowed to bring. So God is in control. He has the illusion, gives the illusion that he's in control and in power, but he can do nothing. Think of the story of Job. Satan can do nothing unless God himself permits it. So evil is, seeks power through deception and it is self-absorbed. Evil is self-absorbed by nature. It can only think of self and exalting self. Chapter 18, verses 11 and 6, verses 11, and then also in verse 16, um, are full of descriptions of living for self. That, I wanted to read at least part of chapter 18 this morning up here <coughs> because it gives a, this, this, this picture of what life is like when I live for myself. All the luxury and pleasure and everything that the people in Babylon were living for. But notice how they came to that. They exploited everything that was created, everything that God created and was given. They exploited for personal gain. So the things that God created and is given to us as resources, they used, I mean, from anything from the things that they could trade their money to um, wood, to, like trees, to their crops, to their animals, and even people. It says they use them as, as slaves. These are all things that God has created and given to us, but evil takes it and twists it and uses it for selfish and personal gain and not for what God has created it for. There's one verse that I want to draw your attention to in um, chapter 18. This is in verse 14. I think this, this depicts the heart of the self-absorbed life, the heart of what the nature of evil is. It says this, um, it's a little bit different. We read it in the New Living Translation. The ESV, it says this, the fruit for which your soul has longed for, I'm sorry, let me start over. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. I want you to think about what your soul longs for, because we're going to come back to that. The fruit for which your soul has longed for is gone from you. John Ortberg says this, Idolatry is the sin of the soul meeting its needs with anything that distances it from God. And I would suggest to us today that what my soul longs for is what reveals who my allegiance is to. So keep that in mind. What does your soul long for, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. The third thing about the nature of evil is that it self-destructs. You guys catch that? This great prostitute and 
all her alliance, her allegiance with all these, the ten horns, the, the ten, seven heads with ten horns and all those weird pictures that we get in Revelation. But there's this allegiance of evil and in the end they turn against each other. Because in, at the end of the day, evil is always looking out for self and it will end up turning on itself and, and attacking and killing each other because that's what the nature of evil is. It's a ceaseless striving to reach the top of the ladder. It's a ceaseless way that we exploit and use any God-given resource, even human life, to advance our own purposes and we discard anything or anyone when it no longer advances its cause. That's what evil does. If it doesn't benefit me, I discard it, and I dis- it doesn't matter if it, what it is. It might be people or whoever it is. I had to think of, like, great, the redwood trees. How many of you have seen the redwoods? I've not yet. Massive trees. Do you know what the, one of the greatest dangers is to the redwoods? It's insects that kill the tree from the inside out. And I think that's, that's the way that, 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 that evil often works. It kills itself from the inside out. But at the end of the day, it will always leave us empty. Any sense of happiness or accomplishment or sense of worth is fleeting, and it's gone in a moment. Just like the Babylon that was depicted in our text, all that luxury, all that pleasure, everything that was used to advance ourselves and to give us our, ourselves pleasure and excitement and living for self is snatched and it's gone in a moment. And ultimately it leads to death. The nature of evil will always leads to death. All right, so enough with the negative. So what is the nature of the gospel? What is the nature of the gospel? How does the gospel take the nature of all that is evil and, it, and the, the nature of the gospel takes that and turns it on, its, on, on itself, on its head? And I just want to mention this very briefly because then I want to get into what I call the nature of the conqueror, which is who we are in Christ. I already noted that the nature of the gospel is that it is for all nations, Chapter six. I'm not going to read. Chapter fourteen, verse six. I'm not going to read it again. But that picture of the throne room with all the people from all world, the whole world. But the thing with the gospel is, as nature, as evil brings death, the gospel brings life. The gospel always, always brings life. If it's something that brings death to people and to self, and it kills and, and shuts down people. That is not the gospel. The gospel brings freedom, and it brings life everywhere that it reaches. It brings true life. It, it breaks us. Jesus comes, and he breaks the grip of the values of the evil in our lives. We no longer live for self. We don't long live this life that is self-absorbed only for self, but we live to serve. We live to give to others. It is other Focus and it builds up rather than it than it tears down. So that's the nature of the gospel, just super super short. But the nature of the conqueror is how I want to end, and I, I want you to turn to chapter seventeen, and I want to point out again, just 
If you're going to highlight a verse in Revelation, this is the one to highlight, or one to highlight. Verse 14 of chapter 17, the nature of the conqueror, and how are, is it that we are conquerors? Verse, chapter 17, verse 14 says, they will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and here's, this is us, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Think of the, the song that we sang, Who You Say I Am. Jesus says, this is who we are. And we are conquerors. We live as conquerors. Why? Because the Lamb has already conquered. The Lamb is the one who conquers. As I, get, as I was studying this, and kept, um, my mind kept going back. Oh, it's probably a month ago during, during our Sunday school time when we are going through that part of Matthew we talked about, there was a question in there that had something, it was something along the lines of, what does the life, what, what is someone who lives prepared for the coming of Christ, what does that life look like? Does anyone remember that, that question? That we, 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 it came up a little bit and it was like, that's been, kind of been churning in the back of my mind over and over and it kept coming back. So what does the life, a life look like that is prepared and looking forward to the coming of Christ. What does that look like? So I want to take us back, or just point us back to what, what I had said about the people in Babylon. The fruit for which your soul longed for has gone from you. What my soul longs for reveals where my allegiance is. What does my soul long for? What does your soul long for this morning? A soul that is nourished, where does it find its nourishment? Is it nourished and satisfied and thriving and healthy? Or is it needing constantly something else to try to keep the cravings at bay? And I know talking about what our souls long for, that's, a, that's a, big, a big subject, and it's much more than we have time for today. But our souls are created to need. We are created to need something, to long for something. Just as our bodies are designed and created for food. We need food for survival. We need water for survival. We need to take in. Our souls need something to take in to survive and to thrive. So what happens when I feed my body junk food, nothing but Mountain Dew, and all, all, the, all the stuff that tastes good for a moment? What if that's all that I take in? Your body's going to begin to break down because it's not good. It might taste good and feel good and be good in the moment. But isn't that how we treat our souls so often? So what is my soul? What is your soul feeding on this morning. The soul that longs for something different than what Babylon has to offer in it with its pleasures, its addictions, its luxury, its status, etc. It is, it is not enough for us simply to turn away from these idols, but we must turn to and feed on something different. wonder how many of us have learn to like foods that we didn't like after we got married. I learned to like foods that I did not like as a child. But 
I acquired a taste for them. And I wonder, let me just say it this way, the things that we take in, the things that we allow our souls to feed on, also will dictate what tastes good and what feels good. So as we grow, as we mature, the more that we feed our souls on the things of God, the things, the junk food, the the pleasures that are fleeting and for a moment will begin to disappear, I think, in the rearview mirror of our lives. And here's the thing. We're the keepers of our soul. No one else is responsible for the condition of my soul. Only me and only you are responsible for the condition of your soul. Is my soul, is your soul frail and malnourished? How do, we, how do we nourish our souls? Just there, There's many ways, but let me, just, let me just throw this out here to us here today. Our souls need to be with God to find nourishment. There is absolutely no substitute for simply being with God. Living and practicing the presence of God in every moment of every day of your life. What does that look like? How do you actually practice the presence of God, being aware of His presence. When your soul is healthy and nourished with the presence of God, no external circumstances can destroy your life. When your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstances can redeem your life. Back in the 1600s, um, there was a guy named Nicholas Herman, and I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, He went by, after his conversion, he went by the name of Brother Lawrence. He was a cook and a dishwasher his whole life. Um, Actually, he was part of a monastic community. Um, But he was nothing more than a cook and a dishwasher his whole life long. But he was very intentional about practicing and being with God, the presence of God, being aware of that presence every day of his life. And he would journal and he would write letters with that. At the end of his life, I think he passed away in 1691, his friends took the, the compilation of these letters and they put it in a book. And many... So, okay. So they put them in the book. And the book is called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's an old, old book. Um, the original copy, there has been 22 million copies printed and it's thought, thought, so research, I couldn't, I couldn't prove this. This was from someone else. Thought to be the most read book in the world next to Scripture. But it's simply the compilation of his life, how he practiced moment by moment living with God, feeding and nourishing his soul. My point is simply this. When my soul is nourished, or with God, and is nourished by his presence then I can be fully alive and I can be fulfilled whether I'm a dishwasher and I'm I'm an attorney, a teacher, or a farmer. And the exact opposite is true when I'm striving for pleasure and the luxury of Babylon. My soul will never find its fulfillment. It can only be found in the presence of God. So I would encourage us to think about practical ways, and I've heard, I've heard lots of ideas, but I just want you to think about it and how, how you can practice this in your own life. A practical way that you can live 
and create a consciousness of the presence of God in your life every moment of every day. You see, I think that is the key for how we live a life that is prepared for the coming of Christ. It's we live with Him each moment of every day. Not just living my life, one day He's coming, but I am living my life every day with His presence right now. So there's one more. I'll just mention it to you. The call to endurance. The conqueror is called to endure. And you can go back and read verses 14, from chapter 14, 12 to 13. It just says this. Here is a call for the endurance of saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. There is a war that is being raged for our souls and for the souls of people in our whole world. The battle is real. But we are conquerors and we are called to endure. And I think we are called, we endure and we conquer and we live prepared for the coming of Christ when we practice and live in the presence of God in our everyday lives. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 15, one of these little interjections in the midst of the darkness of chapter 16, he said this, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed are those who stay awake, keeping his garments on. So let me conclude with this. Go live each moment this week with an acute awareness of God's presence. And as we find, as you find, your soul nourished and satisfied in God, I believe that you will live as one who is prepared for the coming of the Christ. And as you live your life with that awareness of His presence, that presence is going to reflect and impact the people you're with. It just does. That's the nature of how God works. So, thank you for your time. The ladies are going to come up and sing a closing song. I'm going to invite you just to stand with me. We'll close in prayer and they'll sing a closing song and then you can be dismissed. Stand with me, please. Thank you, God, for your word. And God, as we look at, keep looking at Scripture and here in Revelation especially, and as we come across pieces that might be hard for us to grapple with. Whatever else, God, that I pray that this week that we would all leave this morning with a desire um, and an awareness of your presence with us in each moment of our lives and help us to live that this week and thus reflect your glory to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.